Well, I have to admit, it's, it's a little weird talking to you guys and not getting all your normal feedback and chatter and all that good stuff. Um, really love it, by the way. I'm trying to get my center up here, as obviously we're broadcasting from secluded spaces tonight. Uh, I'm trying to get all my notes and stuff together. I really, um, I don't know if you've seen it lately. If you guys, has anybody seen The Chosen? Anybody seen that series? If you haven't, download the app and watch it. Um, it's not to watch it necessarily from a theological perspective, but it just lets you have access to, um, to the people that walked with Jesus, to Jesus himself in, in a way that I haven't seen in any other media platform. And so I just want to encourage you to, to get that out, download it. It's free. You can watch it. And uh, really challenging, really uh, opening and inviting. And I mention that because I want to try to do that just for a short while tonight. Uh, with you guys. We're kind of in between Palm Sunday, which marks the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and between that and Good Friday, just about 48 hours away, where we mark the actual crucifixion of Jesus, of course, followed by His resurrection on Sunday. Um, And so with that framework in mind, what I want to talk to you guys about tonight is not so much to teach you something tonight, but it's to try for each of us to prepare our hearts for Easter by trying to get inside the story. One of the ways we want to do that tonight is, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, It's not a created story. Those looking around the room here, I think most of you have a pretty good handle on it. It's not fantasy. It's not fiction. It's not a story designed to win an argument or claim a place of being right over others wrong. But it's what it is, is eyewitness accounts of something that happened long ago and yet still echoes in our hearts and lives today. So the story has many twists and turns, as you know, and it finds its launching point in Revelation in the week in which we find ourselves right now, which we call the Holy Week or the Passion Week around Easter. And some will argue, well, hey, the dates aren't exactly right, or, uh, you know, when that story was translated, it was changed somewhat because they wanted to promote it a certain way. Um, All I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to use these the words of those that were there to recount to you what happened. And we'll look at those words and through the eyes of those who actually lived it. First-hand eyewitness accounts to what happened. And we're going to do that from the Gospels tonight. That would be the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, And what you're getting there is true eyewitness accounts of what happened. And when you hear people argue that, hey, you can't, the Bible's not trustworthy, it's been changed, it's been altered, or it was written a certain way to promote a certain religion, and that's why it is the way it is, you know, one of the things that authenticates the Bible is something they call the criterion of embarrassment, which in this day and age, when this was written and when all this happened, if you wanted to create a new religion, if you wanted to create a new God, you could, but you would never create a God that would die. You would never have followers that would be less than ideal followers. You wouldn't create a religion with all its flaws and then put all those flaws out there for everybody to consume. You just wouldn't do that. And so the fact that you see the flaws in those that follow Jesus, you see the, the realness of life and you realize they weren't creating a religion and through the gospels you get the accounts of people that were there and said, this is what I saw. This is what Jesus said. This is what happened. And it is trustworthy. And so I'm going to begin with Mark's, Mark's account. The interesting thing about the book of Mark is most scholars believe, it, even though Mark wrote it, 
it was likely Peter who, tra- who dictated it, in a sense, from the Roman prison to Mark, who then recorded it all down. And so, if you can, this is Peter telling you and me what happened through Mark, and Mark wrote it down. So, Mark 1, verses 1 through 5, Emily's going to try and keep up with me by putting the uh, scripture references in the chat, so, or thereabouts, so you guys can, can have that reference point. But Mark 1, 1 through 5, Peter saying this, Peter said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. And so John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him And we're being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And as we drop down to verse 7 through 11, Peter goes on to say, or verses 7 and 8 rather, Peter goes on to say, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Unless you just take Peter's word for it, we pick up in John uh, chapter 1, verse 29. John testifies this way. He says, The next day he saw Jesus coming. This is John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John testifies that this happened. And you couple that with one more from Mark, from Peter. Verses chapter 1, verses 9 and 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So this is Peter and John telling you what happened. Peter through Mark. They're not sugarcoating anything. They're not covering anything up. They're not making people out to look better than they ought to or better than they were. They're saying, you know what? We were fishermen. We were tax collectors and everybody hated us. We were prostitutes. We were nobodies, but we know what we saw. He loved us. He was the Messiah. He was truly the Savior of the world. Now, after this moment where John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, generally the chronology in the scriptures take us to, now Jesus is launching out full-time into his ministry, which we account for about three years worth it, as best we can tell from the scriptures. But he's coming in and he's upsetting immediately an order within the culture that has existed for a long time. As many of you know, the Romans have physical control and power over over the region The religious leaders have a certain amount of power and control over the people. And Jesus comes after leaving John the Baptist, he comes in and he upsets all that. Because at the time, wealth and status meant that, or even health for that matter, meant that you had God's blessing. If you were sick or poor, that signified you were a sinner and you were out of favor with God. Godly people did not associate with you. And so Jesus goes to to those people, the sinners, the nobodies, the ones that you're going to find out in a moment recognize they actually need Him. 
The Romans taxed you beyond your ability to pay and exercise power and control. The religious leaders under the direction of the tradition of the elders, which if you're not familiar with that, is they basically took the law of Moses and then they came up with all these gigantic ways of saying this is how you, you live out this law, the law of God, so to speak. But it was extensive and exhaustive and being added to. And they only were the only ones that had the key, keys to it and therefore had the keys to God. And you could not access God through them unless you fulfilled that never-ending list of do's and don'ts. You were the bottom, and that was all you were ever going to be. A sinner hoping that the powers over you would show you favor. And in the midst of that came Jesus, came the Lamb of God as declared by John the Baptist. And in a way, Jesus walks in and He goes, and he goes to the sinners and He goes to Mary Magdalene and He goes to Peter and Andrew and all these guys and He says, good, you're a sinner. It's exactly where you ought to be. And it's a strange way to approach them. And in Matthew, he jumps in here and gives his account, Matthew chapter 5. This is from what we call the Beatitudes, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew says, this is what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, the poor were not were looked down upon. They weren't looked in favor. And poor in spirit was taking it even a, fur, a step further. So this was offensive to the powers that be, that um, the poor are going to in- inherit the kingdom of heaven? They're the ones that are sinners. They're the ones that aren't in right stead with God. We're the ones that are wealthy and in right stead with God. But it also takes it further to, to explain poor in spirit, which was a way of saying, if you say, I am poor in spirit, if you're willing to admit that, what you're saying is, I recognize my sin. I recognize also, therefore, my need for forgiveness. And therefore, I also recognize my need for a Savior. This is why I think, at least in attitude, if not word, Jesus can say, you're good, you're a sinner, you're in the right, you're in the right place. If you're willing to say today, I've got a deficit I cannot pay, good, you're in the right place. Jesus is saying, my deficit is being forgiven, and therefore I am being freed from my sin. And therein lies the rub during this time, is Jesus is letting people out from under the yoke that's being placed on them if they're willing to seek His forgiveness. Without Jesus, the people remain spiritually impoverished and far from God. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they recognize their need. They recognize where they stand before God and they're willing to seek His forgiveness. Stanley Stanley puts it this way. He says, being a sinner doesn't, doesn't disqualify you from following Jesus. It's actually a prerequisite, Right? Being an unbeliever doesn't disqualify you from following Jesus. All of his believers, all of his followers disbelieved in the end. At some point or another, they did. And as we, we hear their accounts from, from these guys, there's one message that just keeps ringing through that they say Jesus just kept hammering home on this message. And it's the one we see throughout this time. And it is this, repent. The kingdom is near. God has come down to where you are. Repent. Matthew put it this way. He said, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here. Now, when we think of repentance, we often think of repent is not just to stop. We think of it like just to stop sinning and seek forgiveness, right? A turning is kind of one of the trends, a turning away is one of the translations. And that is the first and necessary response. 
But Jesus is also saying to turn towards the kingdom. You're, turn, you're turning away from your old life and you're turning towards Him. You're turning towards following Him. You're turning towards forgiveness and you're coming into the light and life of something so much better than the controlling religion that you've been following. And that's a vastly different way of looking at life. Jesus is declaring a new kingdom, a new way of living, a new way of relating to God, a new covenant between man and God. It's not the list of things you do, going to church, tithing, how loud your prayers are that make you right. It's not what status you hold, what job title, degrees, income, assets. It's grace. And if you don't remember the the definition of grace, it's the unmerited favor of God. And so as Jesus comes on the scene, He disrupts and overturns all this common cultural understanding which is wrong and traps people in their sins. And grace goes off like a bomb in the middle of this cultural war that's being, being, that has begun with Jesus on the scene. And also Jesus now on a collision course with the powers that be. There's no turning back now. A new kingdom has come. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he matches this declaration though, as you guys know, with compassion, with signs and wonders. He touches and heals a leper. He casts out demons. He makes the lame to walk. He restores hearing and sight to the deaf and blind. He turns water into wine and feeds thousands by multiplying food. His reputation and following are spreading far and wide. Everywhere he goes, crowds gather and follow. Big crowds. Religious leaders fear losing religious control. The Romans are stirred because of a new kingdom is being espoused, and this meant a new king. But Jesus is elusive, and he moves about, and the people watch over him and protect him and help him along his way. Now, at this moment, you might be thinking during this three-year stretch as he's doing all this, that um, it, it seems like when you read their, their accounts, their, te- their testimonies, it appears that there's like no order to anything, right? That Jesus seems to be moving about haphazardly, dealing with, with the Pharisees, healing people, challenging others in their faith. He's in Capernaum, he's in Jericho, he's in Bethpage, he's in Samaria. But all the while, he has a single determination to complete his mission. To us following Jesus can look meandering and without purpose or destiny at times. I get it. But all the while, He is maturing our faith, preparing us for the moment, for the purpose, for the person wherein our faith will be tested. For if we let Him order our steps, guys, we are never lost and we're never moving away from our destination. Uh, Those of you that are Lord of the Rings fans will know this quote well. Tolkien, who wrote that, said, uh, is, is known for saying, not all who wander are lost. There might have been times, I think, where Peter and James and John and all these guys are, are, are and Matthew, or they're just going, are we, are we getting there? You're the Messiah. You're the King. Let's go set this kingdom up. And yet they seem to be moving about without a direction that they can, at least that they can discern. And so as the years tick off, as as the movement picks up steam, as his reputation grows, I mean, his fame, along with the opposition, were increasing greatly and quickly. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and among all the things that he has done, this is the one thing 
that, that people can't even begin to comprehend. They've already seen things that they say are impossible, but they can't comprehend raising somebody from the dead. And it causes such a disruption that they not only want Jesus dead at this point, they want Lazarus dead so the story is killed and the testimony goes away. And so the tension of the moment can be felt everywhere. Everyone is beginning to sense that something has to give. A colliding of hopes and powers and cultures and prophecies is about to explode the day that they're in. Many of his followers think he is about to overthrow the government. Many of the religious leaders are worried that he will overturn their standing before the people and the standing of the people before the Romans. Everything now is at risk. Revolution is in the air and people can taste it and they can sense it and they can feel it. But it's not the kind that we think. It's not the kind that they think. The tension and the urgency have begun exposing the hearts of people. And he's closing in on the one place that the Messiah King needs to go to to declare and launch his kingdom because now they're headed to Jerusalem. And you can sense that the the grapevine, so to speak, is spreading the message and the word and people are running out ahead into other towns as they figure out where they're headed to and the message is they're coming. They're coming. And so that we find them on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, which is about a 14-mile difference, Jericho to the east, towards the Jordan River. And uh, Matthew, we pick up Matthew's testimony here in chapter 20, verses 17 and 19. And Jesus, he says this, this is what Matthew said. He says, And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now that's just my emphasis. It might not be your emphasis when you read Matthew's testimony there. But I feel like they're like, They've been probably bugging Jesus all along the way. It's been three years, Jesus. When are we going to Jerusalem to declare this thing? When When are you going to take over the throne that we know you have come for? And so in verse 18, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Now, just to be clear, this is not the first time that Matthew or the others have heard this. This is actually the third time he has explicitly told them what is about to happen. But they're still left scratching their heads. In fact, Luke, when he writes his testimony in in Luke 18, verses 33 and 34, he says, and after flogging him, this is the account that Jesus is giving to them, They will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Just in case you're missing the bluntness and the the details of what's happening. But they understood none of these things. Again, if you want to make your disciples look good, if you want to build a new religion, you don't make it out so your your disciples don't understand the very basic and fundamental part about the whole thing. And yet, Luke says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, And they did not grasp what was said. Their idea of a Messiah King creates in them either an unwillingness to listen or an inability to listen. Sometimes people um, will try to tell you something. You're just like, I just don't understand it. I just don't get it. And I think it's one of those moments for the disciples. They don't understand what kind of kingdom is coming. They even respond by arguing who gets what role in the new government. This is the moment, if you know these verses where James and John, the sons of Zebedee, 
their mom kind of sneaks in at this moment. Because keep in mind, this isn't just the 12 disciples now. There, there's, there's a growing kind of herd of people headed towards Jerusalem with Jesus and the disciples. And this is the moment where she's like, hey, when you go into your kingdom, can you give my boys a spot? Right? As if he's going to issue like, yeah, I need a new prime minister. I'm going to need a secretary of state. I'm going to need somebody to head up Homeland Security, you know, when I come into my kingdom. And, uh, and of course, Jesus is, is responding to them, this is not what you think. This is not what is about to happen. And so Matthew says this is, what, this is what Jesus did in Matthew 20, 25, and 28, or 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, that's a reference to the Messiah, he's referring to himself. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus is saying, just in case you don't understand what's about to transpire, this is the way you should conduct yourself after you see what's going to happen next. And so this kingdom will not be built on power or military might or even signs and wonders, right? It will be built on Jesus himself. And the pillars of this kingdom are going to be grace and repentance and forgiveness. When they move on from Jericho, they're closing in now on Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, which we celebrate on Palm Sunday, which was this most recent Sunday. And, uh, and this picks up again from Luke telling, you, telling us what was going on. It's, they're only about, they're just a shade under two miles out from Jerusalem now. So not far away at all. And so it's, Luke says this, 19, 36 through 38. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now this, is, this must have been an incredible scene. Just to give you a little geographical perspective real fast, uh, Jerusalem kind of set on an elevated plain. On either side, it has two valleys. The Hinnom Valley is kind of on the western, southwestern side, and on the eastern side is the Kidron Valley with the Mount of Olives rising out from it. And so they're coming down that side of the mountain from the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and on the eastern side of the city. And they're about to enter, but as they're coming down the hill and into the valley and getting ready to start back up into Jerusalem, they're singing praises, they're singing songs. This is a noisy multitude that's about to enter the city. And it's a city that's already swollen with many more people than normal because it's the Passover. And people, thousands of people would have come back in the city to celebrate the Passover, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And he heads, he comes through the eastern gate of the city, which is known to be the Messiah's gate. This is the gate that the Messiah will come through. And even his very entrance is, is, is declaring this. And so you can imagine the excitement of everybody that's in tow right now, right? This is it, especially when he comes through the eastern gate. And where does he go? He heads towards the temple. This is where if you're going to declare your kingdom, you're going to establish it, and you're going to let everybody know about it, you would go to the temple. 
And then they get there, and this is what happens. Remember the criterion of embarrassment? This, would, this wouldn't be the way you would write it. Mark, uh, Peter says this through Mark 11, 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he arrives in the temple. It's late in the day. Everybody's kind of packing up. There's not really much going on. He looks around, just surveys the temple, and then they leave. And they walk the nearly two miles back out, him and the disciples, to Bethany, outside of town at the Mount of Olives again. But don't worry, he's coming back the next day. And so for the next several days, they are in and out of the city, and he's in the, he's in the synagogues, and he's teaching, and the, the teachers of the law are trying to trap him, if you remember this part. And so he's going each day, and they want him, they want him eliminated. They, they realize he's declaring himself now to be the Son of God, and they just they want it to end. But they can't afford to lose the crowd, because the crowds are swelling, and people are believing in Jesus and it's quite a disruption, and they don't want it to get so disrupted that the Romans actually physically come in and shut everything down and use force to do so. But they can't let him keep going. And so at this time, they have reached the Passover. And this is where we're going to kind of wrap up tonight and share communion with one another. There's a lot of confusion going on amongst the disciples at this point. They're like, Jesus, we've seen you do all these miracles. We've heard your words. We know what you're declaring. And yet their image and their expectation of what his kingdom would be at this moment was vastly different than what, what was about to happen. So much so that as you heard, Jesus explaining in detail what's about to happen just goes right over their heads and they just miss it totally because their expectations are completely different. And if you're not familiar with the Passover story, I'll summarize it this way. Passover was something that was instituted amongst the Israelites when they were in Egypt. If you remember, Moses is trying to convince the Pharaoh to let the people go. He refuses and all these plagues happen. And eventually, the angel of death passes and God informs Moses and the people to sacrifice a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and the angel of death, if he sees that, will pass over your house and everyone inside the home would be Spared, And so for hundreds of years, the Israelites have celebrated and practiced Passover. And this is the moment in the year when this occurs. Of course, the great thing that everybody is missing in this moment that, that Jesus has presented, that John the Baptist declared when we first started the night, when he was baptizing Jesus at the Jordan to begin with years before this, is, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus is actually now for all time, for all people, for all sins, the lamb that is to be sacrificed, the ultimate Passover lamb to be sacrificed for the sins of all people. So Romans, this is actually Paul. I'm going to throw Paul in here just for a second. Paul summarizes it this way. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Paul said, There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. No amount of actual lamb sacrifice could ever pay the price for one person, let alone the entire world. By sending His own Son the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now Paul had the advantage of 
hindsight, right? 2020, and the disciples will eventually. But in this moment, they don't. In this moment, they're still waiting. They're still wondering, Jesus, what are you going to do? Judas is already busy at this, at this stage, striking a deal to have Jesus arrested and handed over. And Jesus instructs the disciples, as you may remember, to, to go to a particular room in the city, an upper room, a large upper room that's already been prepared for them to celebrate what we call the Last Supper. Um, the Passover is what they're, they're actually having a meal around. And so when we get to this, we pick up again with Peter. And this is where Peter's saying, here is where Jesus explains to us what communion is, and that we are to continue to take it in remembrance of Him. And so if you have those elements with you tonight, whatever form they come in, I know in the situation we find ourselves in, this is not going to be perfect. But you know what? I think Jesus will be pleased that you remembered, that you declared through this simple little act that, Jesus, I am a sinner. I am poor in spirit and I need you. You are the Lamb of God that takes away my sin and I will from this moment forward and every day participate and follow you, participate in this forgiveness and walk in it and follow you. And so Peter says in Mark 14, 22-25, And as they were eating, he, meaning Jesus, took bread And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And so if you've got some bread with you, a cracker or whatever you might have tonight, I'm going to take a moment, just pray over this. You can take it as you're ready. We'll read the back end of those verses and we'll take the second element with it. Father, we declare tonight, that we need You. We declare tonight, Lord, that uh, to ourselves, to those who know us, to those who will know us, and to those who will listen to our testimony, that You laid Your life down for us. And so, Lord, we participate in taking Your body tonight and entering once again and declaring once again the covenant that we have with You And so we take this bread. And then Peter goes on to say, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Forgiveness of sins. Father, we thank you today (laughs) that it's grace. We thank You today for being willing to to empty Yourself, become the Lamb of God, to sacrifice Yourself that we might have life. 
And Lord, even though we feel sometimes like the disciples in this moment, that we don't always understand what you're doing or what's coming next, we trust that we are right with you. And so, Lord, we lay our sins before you. We lay our lives before you. We lay even our hopes and dreams before you. And we declare once again that we are in covenant with you because of what you have done for us. And so they took the cup. I don't think in that moment, I know they didn't understand, but I wonder if they even just sensed the depth and the power of what He had just shown them. I don't know if a light bulb came on and all of a sudden they matched up with, oh yeah, He said this and now that's what this is or that's what's going to, about to happen. Um, I think probably one of the interpretations of Judas leaving and striking the deal to have Jesus arrested at this moment is because he wanted an earthly king and Jesus wasn't going to be that and he finally realized okay Jesus is not going this is, he's a fraud he's not that's what Judas was probably thinking he's not going to be what we we all need him to be but what they obviously didn't realize especially in the next 48 hours what was about to follow with Jesus arrest and crucifixion what they didn't realize was the kingdom that he was offering was so much better. The kingdom he was offering was unlimited in its healing, unlimited in its forgiveness, unlimited in its time frame. It was eternal. It is eternal. And I'm going to stop there tonight. It seems like an odd place to stop. And we're going to have another a song of worship in just a second to reflect on that. But... Um, as we look at the next, say, four days or so, as we head to Good Friday and into Easter, put yourself in their place. Put yourself where they were. And uh, they were nobody, less than nobody in some cases. And the king of the world laid his life down for.